Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It will become quickly evident that my voice is right on the edge of survival this morning, so I apologize in advance for that. Uh, It's not fun to preach and teach when you don't have any strength of voice, Um, but what a great reminder that strength of voice is never what accomplishes strength in preaching and teaching. Um, It's also not fun to sit through a song service when you can't sing, so... I need the Lord to adjust my attitude right now. You can pray for that. Uh, But I am excited about this. Last week, we started our study of gathered worship, and we talked about the joy and the necessity of it. This morning, we're going to consider the purpose of gathered worship. And what I love so much about this is how much joyful motivation it brings. Um, because I know that it is easy for all of us, the pastor included, to forget why we're here. Um, I am very aware that on any given Sunday morning, the, uh, the spectrum of motivation of the people in this room is very wide. You have people here who are so excited to be here. And you have people here who are totally just doing the motions and do not care. Um, really don't want to be here. And so I love this this morning because it reminds us why it matters. In all of life, the why is what motivates us. Why am I even doing this? So my prayer is that the Lord will work in our hearts in such a way that you'll find fresh motivation to gather with your church family, with to to come through these doors each Sunday morning with, with purpose and with eagerness. So there isn't any one Bible passage that says, here are the purposes of gathered worship and then list them. Um, but 1 Corinthians 14 is a great kind of like base camp for us to work out of this morning. Um, and then I'll be referring to, just take a look at your handout and you can see we're using a few other scripture references this morning. Uh, including some of the material from Hebrews that we've recently been talking about. So uh, let's pause and pray for just a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, we look to you confident that your spirit is here in our hearts and your spirit is here in the preaching of the word. And so praying that uh, this preaching would be in demonstration of the spirit and of power and that you might stir up our hearts with no human explanation for it, but a divine explanation because of divine truths that have opened the eyes of our heart. So please help us today. We pray for all those that are gone, including many that are sick, that you might strengthen their hearts through these same truths. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 14 uh, you might know that it's actually a really challenging chapter to interpret. So why go here? Two reasons why it's a good uh, base camp for us this morning. First, this chapter is very specifically about gathered worship. If you look down at verse 23, 
it begins, if therefore the whole church comes together. Verse 26 begins, what then, brothers, when you come together? So this is a passage about when the whole church comes together. And actually, much of 1 Corinthians is about the gathered church. The second reason why this passage is helpful is because it is very clear about what really matters in gathered worship. There are lots of hard questions in this chapter. In the midst of the hard questions, Paul consistently points back to the main things in gathered worship. So what is the purpose of gathered worship? It could be worded in several different ways, but here's a brief phrase that is sentence that has helped me weave together the different biblical strands. The purpose of gathered worship is to draw near to God as a church family, through edification and praise for his glory. Five key components to that. First of all, to draw near to God. Back on May 21st, we considered worship in the book of Hebrews. If you missed that, please go listen to it. That lesson was titled, Worship the God Who is a Consuming Fire. Um, And we learned that the phrase, draw near, is this great call to worship in the book of Hebrews. Since you have been brought near by Christ, it says, now draw near to him. So we've already talked about drawing near to God. However, in Bible study later this morning, we're going to talk about that more because we're going to talk in Bible study today about the presence of God in gathered worship. Is there some sense, is there any sense in which God is here in gathered worship um, in a way that's different from in our, in our normal lives when we're, when we're scattered? So more about drawing near later this morning. Okay, so then the next phrase is, as a church family. When Hebrews talks about drawing near to God, it says, let us draw near together and don't neglect gathering together. So that's what we talked about last Sunday, the joy and necessity of gathered worship. We learned last Sunday that the church is the earthly expression of the heavenly worship gathering, that the church is the temple of God on earth today, that the church, by definition, is not just saved individuals, but an assembly that assembles. So the, the purpose of gathered worship is to draw near to God as a church family. Okay, and then the last phrase is here, through edification and praise for his glory. Those are the three parts that we're going to consider this morning. And I'm sure that two of those three parts are no surprise to you at all, God's glory and praise. You might be a little surprised to find edification there directly connected to worship. Yet, it is edification that Paul emphasizes more than anything else in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 14. So let's start there. Number one, we gather to draw near to God through edification. We gather to draw near to God through edification. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verses 1 and 2. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now, Paul is not necessarily criticizing that. That's a different question. 
But the point he wants to make is that when the whole church gathers, someone who speaks in a way that no one can understand misses the point of gathered worship. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So Paul is trying to help them understand which spiritual gifts best serve the gathered church, and he points particularly to prophecy. Now, there is disagreement among Christians about what he means by prophecy here. That's not our point this morning, though. Our point is that, and I'll say something more about that later, but our point is that at the end of verse 3, he lists some of the key purposes for gathered worship, things like upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And we could summarize all of that with the word edification. Edification is building up the body of Christ. And look with me at how much Paul emphasizes this. Look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Look at the end of verse 5. So that the church may be what? The end of verse 5. So that the church may be built up. The end of verse 12, strive strive to excel in building up the church. The end of verse 17, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So in verse 26, he concludes, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So we can loop back now to verse 3, where we have that same word, the edification word, and it's translated upbuilding. So our first purpose for gathered worship is upbuilding or edification. Now, what kind of upbuilding are we talking about? Is he talking about the church getting bigger? That could be part of it. Is he talking about the church getting stronger? That's definitely part of it. Is he talking about the church getting more stable? That's definitely part of it. Bigger, stronger, more stable. Most of all, though, we can be certain that what he means is built up to be more like Christ. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. The saints are supposed to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ growing up in every way into Christ. I think, it's, I think it's good when you read those verses to just right away picture those growth, those height chart things that we use with our kids to trace their growth. What the, the, the building up that is supposed to happen is the building up more and more to be like Jesus. As Hughes Old has written, worship is the workshop where we are transformed into his image. And that makes sense with what we said last Sunday. Worshipers come in and worshipers go back out. And in between, the gathered worship builds us up to be more like Christ for when we go back out. Paul even hints at that in an illustration he uses in verse 8. So look in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Now, what what he's talking about is how everything in gathered worship needs to be clear. 
the illustration he chooses is a bugle call to get ready, to get people ready for battle. And it's a very fitting illustration because gathered worship really does get you ready for battle. Tim Keller writes, Our actions in gathered corporate worship will strongly influence our actions in scattered out in the world worship. Gathered worship also builds us up for endurance and and it builds us up for obedience and it, it builds us up for service. Kent Hughes writes, it is often during corporate worship that many Christians come to deeper consecration. Corporate worship must always fuel the sacrificial fires of everyday worship. So edification is a key purpose of gathered worship. One of the things this means is that we, we, we cannot think to ourselves, worship is what really matters. And this stuff we do as a church family, trying to care for each other and encourage each other and all that, that's not as important as worship. That is worship. It is a response to all that God has done in creating this church family, and it is strengthening and preparing worshipers. So it is very much worship. Now, as 1 Corinthians 14 continues, Paul mentions some aspects of edification. And there is more than what he mentions here. But um, if you look back at verse 3, after the word upbuilding, what's the next word that he uses to describe it? Go ahead and say it. Encouragement, yeah. Gathered worship should encourage us. That's the same word used in Hebrews 10.25. Don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another. And here's how the Greek dictionary defines this. The act of emboldening another in belief or course of action. Isn't that cool? Gathered worship emboldens us for the whole life of worship. What's the next word in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3? In the ESV, it's translated consolation. And that's similar to encouragement, but it especially focuses on the times when we are sad or weary or depressed or grieving. Gathered worship can comfort. Gathered worship can console. Look down at verse 19. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So another part of edification is instruction. Gathered worship should teach us about Christ. Remember John 4, there is no worship without truth. Ephesians 4 said we should build each other up when we speak the truth in love. So we'll talk about this more next Sunday. But gathered worship has to be full of truth, full of Scripture. Without it, you can't be built up. There is no building up to maturity in Christ without the Word of Christ. So gathered worship includes a lot of instruction. Now, just one more note before we move on from, from this. Who, who does this edification? When we gather as a church, who does the upbuilding? You can see it here in 1 Corinthians 14 when he talks about all of them. 
the, verse, the verses that we most often use to talk about as a church family is Ephesians chapter 4. The whole body causes the growth of the body. The edification happens through everybody, through all the gifts that the Spirit gives, through all the people that God puts together into a church family. You come on Sundays on a mission of edification. And that is motivating because you can edify in so many different ways. And there are so many different people you can help build up. And it is very joyful to drive out of this parking lot and you're tired because there was so much construction that went on. You know what I'm talking about? You got to have that conversation with that person and you sang with all your heart to the Lord and to your brothers and sisters in Christ and you helped set up and you helped clean up or maybe you got to help teach or maybe you got to pray with that person. I come to the end of Sundays and I'm like, I can't even remember everything that just happened. But man, it's good to get to build up the body that Christ purchased with his own blood. Walk through these doors on a mission of edification and you will find joy. You will not be able to sit here and not do anything. You'll be compelled to figure out, how can I build somebody up? I want to. All right. Where are we at? I just totally lost my notes. Oh, yeah, along those lines. Verse 17, that's why Paul says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. He's saying, if you come to have your own private worship experience, I mean, that's well enough. That's all well and good for what it is, but you miss the point because nobody else is getting, is getting built up by that. So our first purpose for gathered worship is edification. Second purpose, we gather to draw near to God through praise. Paul doesn't directly teach about praise in 1 Corinthians 14, but if you read what he's written here, it's evident that he assumes that when they gather, they are full of praise and gratitude to the Lord. Look at verse 15. He says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Obviously, Paul's point there is about edification, but you can see that he assumes that when they gather, there's a whole lot of praising and thanksgiving going on in that gathering. And we could start quoting verses this morning about praise, and there would be hundreds from all over Scripture. Ephesians 1 tells us three different times that our salvation is for the praise of his glory and to the praise of his glorious grace. And that word grace is such a great reminder that Christian worship is unique because we come to God entirely by grace. We don't save ourselves one tiny bit. So when we come to worship, we're not trying to impress God. We're not trying to earn anything. We're not trying to pay back anything. We are his deeply loved children, and we are just responding to grace expressing our grateful hearts to him, bringing our praise. There's no more condemnation. There's nothing else to earn. Just a great God who saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. 
Isaiah chapter 43 describes God's redeemed people as the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Psalm 84 verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Uh, I recently read a, a new book by Thomas Nettles. It's called Praise is His Gracious Choice. And, and Nettles explains how everything in creation praises God and yet how as people we can praise him like nothing else. Here's, here's part of what he says. Birds and brooks, lions and lambs, stars and stones, elephants and eggs, rhinos and rabbits, magnets and mice, bitumen and beeswax, clouds and clods, all join their peculiar qualities to imply praise. The, part, the peculiar qualities of each part of creation imply praise. They suggest that there must be an amazing creature. But then, creature, an amazing creator. Yes. But then, Nettles goes on to remind us that only humans, along with angels, are capable of using our minds and our intellectual capacities and the gift of language to directly speak God's praise. You see the point? All of creation implies God's praise, but only people can use their intellect and the gift of words to speak God's praise. And then, unlike angels, what can we do? There are angels who fell, and God will not redeem them. And so there are no angels praising God for his redemption of them. We can praise God for his redemption of us. Psalm 107, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so as both human beings, as well as human beings who have been redeemed, we can praise him in a way that nothing else can. And we gather to do exactly that. Psalm 111, 1, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. So we gather to draw near to God through praise. But praise might be a little bit of a vague concept, so let's break down some of the aspects of it just to help us think broadly about it. First of all, praise involves expressing amazement about God. Amazement about God. Psalm 22, 23, you who fear the Lord, Praise him and fear is that big biblical thinking about God, knowing him as he truly, truly is. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And Isaiah 6, the seraphim at God's throne are crying out, holy, 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 meaning there is no one like him. He is absolutely, perfectly, infinitely, uniquely amazing. Remember that Psalm 95 We learn there that God calls us to bring energy, to bring joy, to bring even volume in our response to the Lord. It says, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That's expressing amazement. 1 Peter 2, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies. That is 
praise that is expressing amazement. That's what excellencies means. You're amazed. Everything that is wrong with creation is right with God. Everything that is sinful and ruined in us is whole and perfect in him. Everything that's weak and limited in us is boundless and powerful in him. There is no one like him. No one who can even begin to compare. So we gather to express to God our amazement, our reverence, our awe. Next, praise involves thanking God as the giver. Thanking God as the giver. Part of our foundational sinfulness is our failure to give thanks to God. I know we've come back to this verse so many times already in this series, but Romans one twenty one. although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so that means that when God restores us as worshipers, gratitude is a foundational part of praise. Hebrews 12, we've already seen so many times, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Colossians chapter 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. There we go, three times, three verses, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It, of course, what comes to mind right away is Luke 17 and the story of Jesus and the, the healing of the ten. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan not a Jew, verse 17. Then Jesus answered, were ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise? Now, what did it say in the previous verse? It said he came to give thanks. And here it says to give praise to God, except this foreigner. So we gather to say thank you to God. All right, now let's, all right, we got A and B, right? So let's just catch our breath for a second. I know we're looking at a lot of verses here. So remember, this is our purpose statement. The purpose of gathered worship is to draw near to God as a church family through edification and praise for his glory. Now, praise is what we're talking about right now, and we're talking about some different aspects of it. We gather to express amazement, to say, you are amazing. We gather to give thanks for his gracious gifts, to say, you are generous, thank you. Now, the third aspect of this praise is confessing that you believe what is true about God. And this is a, a part of praise that it might be easy for us to forget about, but it's very, very important. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What does acknowledge mean in that verse? Because sometimes we use that word in a negative way, like she barely even acknowledged that I was there. Is that what we mean? Like, oh yeah, God, you're here. <laughs> we acknowledge you. 
definitely, obviously not. The word that's used here, being translated here, means to publicly confess what you believe. Here's some phrases from the Greek dictionary entry. To acknowledge something ordinarily in public, a public declaration, a profession of allegiance. So this is nothing like, yeah, we acknowledge you're here. This is, I publicly profess my allegiance to you, to these truths, a public declaration, a confession of what is true. And in this context in Hebrews 13, the previous verses have spoken about Jesus, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, and who sanctified us through his own blood. So to acknowledge his name is to say, I believe in the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus is the eternal God, the same yesterday and today and forever. I believe that Jesus shed his blood for my sin. I publicly profess my allegiance to Jesus. Can you see how confession is praise? To use a silly human illustration, it's no different from a fan wearing an athlete's jersey to a game. That is praise. You're publicly confessing that you appreciate that athlete enough to spend money on his jersey. Confession is one of the ways we praise God. And confession is, by its very definition, something you do in the presence of others. You publicly confess. There are some, uh, there are some sections of the New Testament that, are, um, that, that seem like they might be early Christian confessions. 2 Timothy 2.11 is one of them. Here's one, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then it's laid out in a way that's, that's like a hymn, that's like a, a formally structured confession. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That may be a very early confession from the Christian church. If not, it became one uh, once uh, Paul wrote it here. So... Um, We've been in 1 Corinthians 14. There's actually confession right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. If you look at the beginning of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, Paul says in verse 1. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And he goes on through basics of the gospel down through verse Eight, that's, that's a confession there. You know, Romans 10, verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And in Hebrews 10, right before the call to not neglect gathering together, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, not neglecting to gather together. Our public gatherings Help us hold on to our confession because we gather and we confess together what is true. We're not only speaking to God, we're also teaching and admonishing one another. We are confessing to one another, this is true. Don't forget it. Don't let go of it. In, um, in Matt Merker's book about corporate worship, he talks about a Sunday morning at his church when they were singing a, a song and the truths were just not connecting with his heart as they sang that song. And then he looked across the room 
And there was a brother in Christ singing that song. And when he saw just the face of his brother in Christ, when he watched him sing that song, those truths started to connect with, with his heart. And that's the way God intends it to be. When we confess what is true together, it strengthens our hearts. We not only praise God by the confession, but we also build up one another. And in addition to that, I can't take a lot of time on this right now. Maybe we'll talk about it later. But in that confession, we're also telling the next generation this is true. That's mentioned in several psalms. I put three of them there on your, on your notes. The psalms say, gather together to tell the next generation. That's, that's a key reason why we do not start our kids' classes until partway through the service so that they can hear us praise God by the confession of what is true uh, together. All right, that's our third aspect of praise. And then the fourth is telling others that God is worthy of worship. Remember again that, that picture in the lobby of the water left behind at the well while the woman went to tell her village, John 4. Um, uh, I think it was last Sunday in the 10 to 12s class, we, we studied the apostle Philip. And when Jesus called Philip to come follow him, Philip immediately went to tell Andrew, I have found the one we've been waiting for. A little while ago, we saw in 1 Peter 2 that we are a holy priesthood to proclaim God's excellency. So, when we gather for worship, we are preparing to go tell the world. Brian Chapel writes, as we retell his story in our worship, our hearts are moved by his love and we want to tell the world of it. Matt Papa writes a little more bluntly, you don't get hit by a freight train and stay the same. If our churches will be faithful to make the exaltation of Christ our goal, then Christ will be faithful to make his missionaries. Marva Don writes, we want to avoid music that focuses only on our personal feelings of happiness instead of equipping us to be a missional community that reaches out beyond ourselves with the good news of grace in Christ. Now, since we're in 1 Corinthians 14, we should note that so, so what we're saying here is that gathered worship prepares us to go call others to worship. It is also true, and it's talked about here in 1 Corinthians 14, um, really the only place in the New Testament that talks about this, that in the process, our gathered worship might actually do evangelism. In other words, somebody might get saved here. So look at it in 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. As we learned last week, we don't craft our gathered worship to appeal to a non-Christian. But if we are faithful to gather as we should, and if the truth is clear, evangelism might happen here. 
And that is awesome when it happens. But we're not just gathering and hoping that God might save someone here. We're gathering to worship in preparation to go tell others and call them to come and worship our great God and Savior. All right. And then finally, our third purpose for gathered worship is that we gather to draw near to God for his glory. But before we get into that, so, so we said after the first point, I said we come on Sundays and you're on a mission of edification. We can say the same thing about point two, right? You come on Sundays and you are on a mission of praise. You want to praise God every way you can. You can praise him with simply your heart response to him. You can praise him with your singing. You can praise him with those scripture readings. You can praise him when you talk to one another and you talk about the goodness of the Lord. All these different, you can praise him with the confessions. You come and you're on this dual mission to draw near to God through edification and praise. And you just would love every opportunity to do as much of those things as you possibly can. Why? Finally, for his glory. We gather to draw near to God for his glory. So Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, we can apply that verse to all of life, and we, we should, absolutely. In context, that's not quite what he's saying. Because 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, the whole section is about the gathered church. And so this verse, while it definitely applies to all of life, in Paul's flow of thought in 1 Corinthians, what he's saying is, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything in a way that will build up your church family for the glory of God. Just a few verses before this, he said, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do what builds up, for that is what will glorify God. Again, this is so interesting because we probably think that praise is what glorifies God, and it certainly does. But 1 Corinthians 10.31 is about how edification glorifies God. To care for his church, to love his people, to help his children become more like Christ. This greatly glorifies God. This is drawing near to God. Edification glorifies him. And then, of course, to praise him glorifies him. To express amazement glorifies him. To give thanks glorifies him. To confess his truth glorifies him. To prepare to go tell others this glorifies him. This is drawing near to God for his glory. So it's not like, when you look at this, it's not like edification and praise and glorifying God are three separate purposes. We draw near to God as a church family through edification and praise for his glory. Those are the activities of the church that say, God, you are great. You are worthy. We want to continually draw near to you. And when a group of people do that, then we can be confident that God has been doing John 4. He has been seeking worshipers because you'd never do that if he hadn't. If he hadn't come and brought new life and made you 
a worshiper. The church family which gathers to draw near to God through edification and praise for his glory is evidence of the saving miracles of God. It is evidence that God is miraculously restoring what is broken because, again, Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And when we walk through these doors saying, man, I would love to edify and praise in every way I possibly could to God's glory, you're a miracle. You're a miracle who just walked through that door, a miracle of spiritual life. Here in this commercial building in Murrieta, California, and in countless locations around the world, church families are gathering to honor him. It's amazing. D.A. Carson begins his definition of worship like this. Worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings. In other words, human beings. The proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth, sorry for the typo, to their creator God, precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. Ligon Duncan writes, there is no higher answer to the question, why do we worship, than that the glory of God is more important than anything else in all creation. The chief end of the church is to glorify God and enjoy God together forever because the chief thing in all the world is God's glory. And he references Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, one last time, the purpose of gathered worship is to draw near to God as a church family through edification and praise for his glory. We can come to church on Sunday morning, and we can say, I know why I'm here. I've got the most important stuff in the world to do this morning. The yard will have to wait. The laundry will have to wait. The games can wait. The spreadsheets can definitely wait. I've got to be with my church family. We're going to draw near to God together by building each other up and praising his majesty. And by God's strength and God's grace and God's spirit, it is going to bring him glory. So, It's going to be worship. That's what it's going to be when we gather together by his grace. How awesome is that? So whatever else might be going on on Sunday morning, I'm sorry, but I've got somewhere to be. And what's just so amazing to me, the the, the most, I don't know, just the, the simplest little incredible truth to end this with is just that by God's grace, by God's spirit, When this group of dirty sheep gets together for gathered worship, what actually happens is that we worship and God gets glorified. But that actually happens. We glorify God. And yes, we need to grow. And yes, sometimes we don't do it very well. And yes, if our hearts are far from him, then then we don't. All those things are true, but it's still true that when church families gather together through Christ, by his grace, filled with his spirit, 
God is actually glorified. He does not look at us and go, oh, you're so pathetic. He looks at us. Genesis chapter 1, he looks at creation and he says, this is good. And you can be certain that he looks at his new creation, the earthly outcropping of the Hebrews 12 heavenly gathering. And when we gather and we seek to draw near to God through edification and praise for his glory, he says, this is good. Now it's going to get better when we're glorified in heaven. But today he is actually glorified. We actually do draw near to him together. Amen. All right. That's sermon part one. And in Bible study, we're going to go into part two, which is, do we actually draw near to him together? Because look with me, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about next. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all of your goodness and saving mercy. And we pray now that to the degree to which we have forgotten why we're here, you might restore that to us. In whatever sense our hearts have become dull or our gathering as a church has become for some other reason, or we've just been so distracted by the world and ourselves that we, we have not paid any attention to why you would have us here. In any of those cases, we pray that by your grace and your spirit, you would stir us up to remember again that the most important things in the world are going on right here when your people gather for your glory. And to, to persuade us again through your word that it actually happens, that you truly are glorified here. Stir up our hearts where they are cold. May they not stay that way by your grace. Where our hearts are dull, may they not stay that way by your grace. Where we have been purposeless, may it not stay that way. I pray that you might bring your people on a mission of edification and praise. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.